0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hilary Harper here. Hello. If your child was disrupting others in class, how would you like to see that handled? Australia has slid down towards the bottom of the rankings for student behaviour in schools in recent years, and many teachers are feeling hamstrung when it comes to what kinds of consequences they can hand out, even for really challenging or even dangerous behaviour. A Senate inquiry is looking into this right now, but today on Life Matters, I'd welcome your thoughts as we explore how we got here. We're coming to you from Wurundjeri land. What is the best response to a child with challenging behaviours in the classroom? A restorative circle of justice, perhaps? detention, even suspension or expulsion if it got worse? This is a problem that's increasingly confronting teachers and principals around Australia and it's prompted a Senate inquiry, which is due to report in November. Dr Erin Leaf, a behavioural analyst and senior lecturer in the School of Educational Psychology and Counselling at Monash University uh, put in a submission to that inquiry. And also with us is Melissa Gillett, a President of the Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association. Principals in some states executives in others. Melissa, welcome. Good morning. Thanks. Great to have you here too. Erin Leaf, I'll, let's start with these rankings. Where are we exactly on them and how did uh, how was that measured?
2: So we're currently ranked 70th out of 77 participating nations on measures of classroom discipline. And this was measured through actually a survey that was administered to students. Um, I think 15-year-old uh, students. And so they were asked to respond to a survey about their views of disruptive behavior and discipline in their classrooms. And a large majority of Australian 15-year-old students stated that they felt their classrooms were noisy and disorderly. The teacher was not listened to. And it generally took a long time for students to quiet down so lessons could begin. Um, so that statistic is from the OECD Um Uh, survey of uh, disciplinary climate um, within schools and that was reported in 2018. But now we have more and more teachers um, and school leaders who are reporting that managing disruptive and challenging student behaviour is, is really difficult and it's really increasing their stress
1: and their workload. Yes, I imagine the pandemic did not help things. So that, that, those figures, the 70th out of 77, that in itself represented a decline on earlier figures, yes. didn't it? So would you say it we're did. probably lower now?
2: Um, It's hard to say. Look, I I think, you know, uh, the question of whether or not we're experiencing a bit of a behavioral crisis in our schools today um, is difficult to answer. And I think the answer is actually yes and no. I think it depends. I think this varies from school to school. Um, some schools, I think, are, are really thriving and, and students are really succeeding behaviourally. But I think in other schools, um, it's really difficult. And there are
1: a number of contributing factors. We're speaking with Dr Erin Leif, a behavioural analyst and senior lecturer in the School of Educational Psychology and Counselling at Monash University. And we have on the discussion panel, too, with us today, Melissa Gillett, president of the Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association, because it's really useful, I think, to get that school leadership perspective in a discussion like this. Erin, do you have thoughts about why there's been that deterioration, why it's happening now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple of factors um, that are contributing. It's multifaceted, right? So there's no sort of single or simple reasons why. Um, I think one of the reasons is that, um, and maybe uh, sort of following on from COVID and in this long period of um, disruption to learning is that students have fallen behind academically. And one thing we know is that students may be more likely to engage in disrupt- disruptive behavior when the demands of the classroom exceed their current level of skill. So we sort of see this vicious cycle where students who are um, disruptive are likely to fall behind academically and then students who have fallen behind academically are more likely to engage in disruptive behavior. And in particular, this connection has been shown to be strongest, this link between a student's literacy skills and disruptive behavior. And so we also see that students' literacy um, performance in Australia seems to be declining Um, And this makes sense because as our students progress through school, they need to demonstrate increasingly advanced language and literacy skills to participate and succeed. And so um, when we have students with delayed literacy skills, they face a more challenging learning environment where they're continu- continuously asked to use skills that they do not have.
1: I found it really fascinating that uh, the countries that were up the top of the uh, behavioural rankings were places like South Korea at the top and then Kazakhstan, Albania, China and Japan, which are known to have mm. you know more uh, clear, strong approaches to disciplines, I might say regimented. Mm. They also do better on uh, literacy and maths rankings. Is there a link, Erin, between the increasing disruptive behaviour and NAPLAN results? Look,
2: I think there is. I think it's hard to say what comes first. Is it that disruptive behavior is happening more and more, and as a result, our academic um, outcomes seem to be declining? Or is it that our academic outcomes are declining, and as a result, we're seeing more disruptive behavior? Um, I think that um, coming back to your point about some of the countries that have shown relatively higher levels of success in terms of, um, you know, disciplinary and um, behavioral climate within schools. Um, it's also likely that those schools may have, um, they may be using a more consistent and and a broader continuum of strategies to support student success with their behaviors at school. And I think another factor is that sometimes schools feel that their hands are a bit tied in terms of, the uh, availability of different um, ways to manage student behaviour. Um, and sometimes different ways of managing student behaviour are inconsistently applied. Um, and that can also create, you know, a culture within schools where disruption is, is almost
1: accepted and
2: normalised.
1: Melissa Gillett, you've been a teacher and a school leader for some decades. What's your view as to why things are getting worse now, even before the pandemic effects?
3: Oh, look, I think it's a really complex question. Uh, it, when you listed the countries there that are at the top of the rankings, I, I think fundamental the fundamental difference between those countries and Australia is the value that the community places on education. Uh, it, it's simply never acceptable to misbehave in some of those countries' schools. Uh, parents will back the school 100% and the kids just behave the way that it's always been. Australia's quite different with that. The pandemic certainly has made things more complicated, but I think fundamentally kids need to feel safe in a classroom. If we can't create a a safe environment for them, that's when we'll see uh, misbehaviour coming in. But I also think we have far more complex kids uh, and I think it is that student complexity, uh, disability, mental health, poverty... Um, family circumstances
1: and the like that's really having the biggest impact. That safety issue is really interesting, isn't it? Because I imagine as a school leader, you're having to think in terms of occupational health and safety as well as your duty of care to students. Are there times when there's a tension between having to protect teacher wellbeing and having to uh, work out what's best for all the students in the class?
3: It, look, on occasion there is. Uh, it broadly, it, it, well, that, that would be a rare circumstance that you're worrying to that extent, other than in the cases of complex, really complex students. But in a broad stock standard classroom, it's more about a safe learning environment where they feel that it's safe that they can make mistakes, safe to uh, to acknowledge when there's something that they don't know so that the teacher can then give them the help
1: to get there. Okay, so safety in terms of uh, being able to, as you say, admit when there's something that's, that's troubling them and, and get some support for that. That's right. So, Melissa, you mentioned a lot of the things that a lot of parents are seeing too. You know, there's an explosion of people at the very least being more open about uh, having diagnoses of ADHD or autism or uh, various other things, anxiety, emotional issues that are impacting learning. How do you deal with that on a school level, given that it's obviously something that starts outside the classroom but has an impact inside the classroom? If it's something you know,
3: then it's something that schools deal with all the time. So every school would have in the vicinity of 20% plus of kids that have got some sort of a particular need, um, a diagnosed or undiagnosed disability. Uh, It's the kids that you don't know about that certainly provide some challenges. But outside of that... well going back a step i think it depends as well in a primary or secondary environment in a primary school where a teacher largely has the same group of kids all day every day you can certainly get to know the kids a lot better in a secondary environment where a teacher has five
1: classes of 30 kids uh, it's a lot more challenging Yes, indeed. Some great texts coming through on this. As a teacher of 20 years, this has been a problem that's increasing way before COVID, says one. And another says parents need to add their support to teachers. We are trained to manage classrooms, but kids override teachers with threats. Cooperative classrooms are great. We'll get into some ways that uh, schools and academics are suggesting we could handle this as this discussion progresses. Stormy's called in from Ballarat in central Victoria. Hi, Stormy. Hi, how are you going? Good. What are your thoughts about the general approach we should be taking?
4: Well, I think the general approach would uh, need to include uh, an all-inclusive regime. Uh, a friend of mine who is a single mum has a nine-year-old who has PTSD due to um, personal uh, abuse that happened in her young life and her mum's desperate to get help, but headmaster at the school she attends in ballarat has no idea how to deal with it i don't blame her specifically about that i think that there's a need for training in the teachers colleges to include mental health and all those areas that have been mentioned so far to be part of the curriculum at the um, school at the teaching colleges because it's such an important thing we come into this world my mum was a teacher um and she's no longer with us sadly but I really think in in the space where I'm autistic, um, also uh, I may have ADHD, um, and my friend um, raising a child on your own and your head and when you have the headmaster saying, "Oh, you need to get the psychologist outside school hours." I mean that's inappropriate, and that means to me and to my friend that um, the school doesn't know how to deal with it, and I think we need more of a, of an intersectional approach. And that includes the community, uh, the education department. It also includes, as I say, the system which prepares teachers. Um, it would have been my path if I hadn't have lost my eyesight, but I just love this area. But what we're trying to do in the meantime, until this knowledge gets across, because creating a safe environment involves making it safe both for the autistic child or, or whomsoever the child is displaying particular behaviours, And the students wholesale so they that there's no otherness where the, the students feel afraid of the student that's having the behavioural problems.
1: Yes, and Stormy, it's only in recent years, I guess, that we've learnt more about autism and how it presents, especially differently between girls and boys, and teachers are, are starting to be equipped with more uh, information and support about how to help kids who uh, have an autism spectrum disorder. Thanks for your call. Jane's on the Gold Coast adding her voice too. Jane, what would you like to say?
5: Um, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd just like to say that um, the two ladies who are on the show, I agree with them wholeheartedly. I've been a teacher for over 46 years and I agree that each child needs to feel safe in a school environment. What I find is that I think we should go back to teacher training because we are having so many more children with specific difficulties, ASD, ADHD who can't, who need different skills and strategies to survive. I also think that schools like Arcadia on the Gold Coast and Mastery on the Gold Coast, who have specialist, excuse me, who have specialist peoples in the school environment to help them through the day, to check on them, to make sure they're feeling safe, to make sure that the curriculum is geared to their needs. In Arcadia, I know that they get children, they try to get children back into the main school uh, by 11 and 12. Other students at year 10, they gear them into apprenticeships. This is giving them life skills. Back to the classroom, if you have children <clears throat> in a mainstream, in a large cohort of 28 to 30 that you get in independent schools... Um, and you have a smattering of children with special, special needs. You try to work with those children, but then teachers are so drawn to, am I being fair to the other children? Teachers have a very difficult role, I think, from when I first started teaching to now. Um, I just feel that they need um, help and support Um, as
6: well as the children. Yeah, it's really interesting,
1: Jane. Our Facebook page has some comments from teachers on it and you could hear the sense of being torn between trying to work out what's best for all the different kids but also their own mental and sometimes physical health as well. Jane, thank you for that perspective. Phil's in Crescent Head. Hi, Phil.
0: The countries that do their best have got a very different cultural approach to schooling, and I wish we could see some attempts to change the culture around schooling. With my own child, who I'm dealing with his disruptive behaviour at the moment at school, and the teachers and uh, particularly the administrative staff have been magnificent, uh, he thinks he doesn't value doing well at school. It's not cool to be smart. It's not cool to do well at school. And it's not until he's stuck in a dead end job somewhere that he'll regret. The, the way that he thought back when he was 9 or 10 years old. Um, every rugby league team, every AFL team, every Formula 1 team runs on engineers, they run on scientists, and it could be a real rich vein to change the culture uh, a little bit by just simply showing kids those roles, showing kids scientists who are doing uh, uh, amazing and interesting work, showing kids that... Um, every pro surfer every pro athlete has a team of scientists helping him to achieve and have those magic moments on the field or her yes or her i beg your pardon or her yes thank you and i just think that even though changing culture is a very long process and is very nebulous we should attempt that
1: Totally, and it's terrible being a parent sometimes, isn't it, Phil? Because you can see all these different future pathways potentially unspooling in front of the kid, and you know what might help head them off. But it's very hard as as one individual to get through to the child and and illustrate that. As you say, it'd be great to to uh, show how exciting and important the job of a sports physio, for example, could be. All the best with your um, your situation, Phil. I know it's a, it's a it's a big weight on a parent's mind, isn't it?
0: Yes, it really is, and I just I I can't say uh, too much about the support and the public school teachers' um, time and the effort that they put in. In my, I just. It's amazing, So thank you very much.
1: It's incredible. Uh, We we have benefited from that too. Thank you, Phil. I was reading some stats recently about the percentage of time that teachers spend uh, talking to parents, communicating with parents and helping with non-school issues, I guess, the the kind of emotional support uh, that's not directly related to the day-to-day learning. It was huge and it it doesn't surprise me when I see what goes on in the school that we're lucky enough to be associated with. I want to take up a couple of points quickly with our guests. We're speaking today with Dr Erin Leaf, who uh, is a behavioural analyst and senior lecturer in educational psychology and counselling at Monash University in Melbourne, and Melissa Gillett, who's president of the Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association. Uh, Some states call them principals, some call them executives. Melissa, if I could ask you, do we need to look at teacher training? Is there too much focus in the graduates you see on on how to deal with uh, curricula as opposed to the the kind of realities of classroom behaviour?
3: Well, that's a really complex question. Again, I think in the main, the teacher training um, has improved and uh, become more modern as time's gone on. So I'm not sure that it's simply a matter of training. That that said, it's essential that teachers have that training. Until you're actually in the classroom and on the ground, I don't think that the uh, academics alone will help. I think it needs to be a combination of both certainly the theory and understanding that you get in teacher training is essential but to actually put it into practice is where the ground the rubber hits the road so teachers need to have both
1: involved in their training on the way through And the other thing that's coming up as a theme in our text line uh, with a couple of texts coming through on it is corporal punishment. Dr Erin Leaf, can we uh, put that to rest? Is that a useful uh, tool to have in a school's arsenal? I know it's not allowed in Australia, but uh, what are your thoughts on that, which has been suggested as a way back to some form of discipline?
2: No, absolutely 100% not. That is not the way forward. Um, In doing those types of uh, using those types of practices, we're simply modeling to children that abuse is an appropriate problem solving strategy or conflict resolution strategy. So we can put that one to rest. And we do not need to revert back to those types of practices.
1: And Erin, you you make a distinction too, don't you, between disruptive behaviour and the, the kind of more challenging behaviours up the other end of the spectrum. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think it is important to um, sort of make a, a distinction between different types of disruptive or challenging behaviour that we might see within school. So. I tend to use the term disruptive behavior to refer to behaviors that disrupt the class and can negatively impact the, the teacher's ability to teach and students' ability to learn. But these behaviors may not pose an immediate sort of uh, physical or psychological risk to the safety of others within the environment. So these might include things like talking out of turn, creating excess noise, being out of seat, using disrespectful language or refusing to cooperate Um, But we tend to use the term challenging student behavior to refer to behaviors that pose a risk to the safety or well-being of the student or others. And um, these types of behaviors could result in the student um, experiencing exclusion from the classroom. So these can include behaviors like property destruction, verbal abuse or threats, physical assaults um, or leaving school grounds without permission. So... um, We think it's important to make that distinction because we believe that different approaches are needed to support students with disruptive behaviour versus um, what we term challenging behaviour.
1: And is it gendered at all? Do, Do boys need different disciplining to girls, for example?
2: Look, I don't think so. I think that um, some research may suggest that boys might be more prone to externalizing forms of behavior, whereas girls may be more prone to some internalizing um, forms of behavior such as shyness, becoming withdrawn, becoming depressed. Um, So in in that sense, yes, we do need to look at different approaches. Um, But I think that consistency is really important. Um, And so having a consistent sort of continuum of ways to support students with
1: their behavior at school is going to be really important. We'll have a look in a moment, I think, at the options available to uh, school communities in a moment. Erin, uh, just quickly, what impact do we know from the research does the disorderly classroom have on learning? If we, I guess, steer away from the, the hugely challenging end of, of the behavioural spectrum and just look at those kind of day to day repeated disruptive behaviours.
2: Yeah, and so what we're focusing on in some of our research is those lower level sort of ongoing frequent disruptive behaviors because they actually add up over time and have a, a pretty big cumulative impact on, um, on on learning in the classroom. And so um, some of the um, information that we've seen within the research is that, you know, Um, uh, disruptive behavior can delay the start of class by on average six minutes. So when you factor that six minutes of instructional time out of every class period, that's about five weeks of lost learning time over the course of the semester. Other research suggests that each disciplinary incident costs the teacher about 17 minutes of time in the classroom. And teachers are on average managing about five disciplinary incidents per day. So again, when we add that up collectively across the whole school year, that's a lot of lost instructional time. And when kids are losing instructional time, they're losing opportunities to gain those really important academic skills that are going to set them up for success in life. So, um, so it is uh, these these lower level disruptive behaviors are are quite a significant um, challenge that needs to be addressed. And we think that by addressing these types of behaviors using a range of educational supports, that we can actually prevent the development. Um, of more severe forms of challenging behaviour that are much more difficult to manage and
1: um, and deal with. I think this is something that literally every person in every state or territory around Australia has views on, given uh, uh, the explosion of texts coming in on our text line. Sarah in Victoria writes, we also need to consider base level things like making sure kids have had a good nutritious breakfast. Free breakfast programs at school can make a big difference. And that's echoed on our Facebook page as well. And Anne says, I was a teacher for 40 odd years over the years I noticed parents becoming less respectful of teachers children aren't allowed to be disciplined in some cases you're confronted for disciplining a child I wonder if that's something that you've seen we'll take some more calls I think because there's lots of people wanting to join in this discussion Paul in McGregor Paul where's McGregor for starters
7: a uh, teacher in Belcon, North West Canberra.
1: Aha, well thanks for joining us. You've uh, in your 49th year of teaching. What perspective has that given you?
7: Well, I've I've been in various roles through my career, mostly in New South Wales country schools, but I've been in Canberra for 8 years, and um but I've I've been student welfare coordinator in a very large school, and um now I'm only part-time, but Look, just a couple of comments. I was talking to a colleague over the weekend from a large country high school, a very well-known school in New South Wales, and she said they've got to the point where they they just can't find teachers to look after Year 7. So they've actually got casual teachers covering English classes in Year 7 because they can't get permanent teachers. Now, if the kids are constantly having changes of staff in front of their class each day. That is like it's been always been a well-known fact that when you have a lot of teachers away, the kids' behaviour levels deteriorate. So if it becomes the norm, it's just going it's just a vicious circle that goes around and round. Um, teachers, the teachers who are there permanently are going to be giving up. I think we have to completely change the way. Um, we manage beginning teachers because a lot of the time they're thrown in at the deep end and we have a a system where teachers can only be promoted to administrative uh, leadership roles, whereas they should stay, good teachers should stay in the classroom but be offered a mentoring role for young teachers and, and, and be a sounding board for advice and and. And, you know, just to be a support when things do go wrong and they do go wrong very regularly.
1: That's a really interesting alternative look at at career progression, Paul. Thank you. And actually, we have been hearing a lot lately on this program about how accommodation issues in regional areas in particular are affecting schools' ability to attract and retain staff. So that's another factor, I guess. Dorothy's in Heidelberg West in Melbourne. You're a teacher, Dorothy. What's your view?
6: Um so I uh, initially trained as a mainstream uh, music and music teacher um and I've worked in that um um as uh, you know uh, for about f- 5 years before um having a break but anyway now i work in special needs and what i've noticed is the class sizes are a lot smaller um uh, there's um uh, usually one teacher two ess so this is in a special needs set- setting um um and um so there's a lot more um more attention that you can give to individual students, um, and I like that. There's also not the big changeover of, um, every hour or, you know, basically you have 45 minutes with a group of kids and then out they go and in come another group. And so, you know, it's it, it takes at least 10, 15 minutes to settle students when you bring them in, um, at, let alone actually trying to teach them something. Um, and not only that, I, I also think that ESs do an absolutely fabulous job. And um, I and I think they deserve to have, a, 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 you know, to be recognised... Um, for the job that they do, um, and um, in in the in in what they're earning each week as well, because um, they especially when dealing in a in a special needs setting, but not only special needs setting, mainstream as well, um, you know, it can be challenging. Um, yes,
1: yeah. yeah. We bake yep. a lot of shortbread for ours at the end of the year, but I'm sure that's not really enough. The the whole school would collapse without them. Dorothy, thank you so much. That's a really useful part of this uh, jigsaw puzzle. I think. Thanks for your call. Cool, thanks. We're talking about the very multifaceted topic of discipline in schools. We heard at the start of the program that Australia is now down around 70th of 77 uh, in a survey of students about how they felt about whether their classrooms were disrupted and whether that was affecting their learning. They said yes, yes, it actually very much was. And that was in 2018. And the feeling is that it is quite likely worse now given the impacts of the pandemic on a lot of students and a lot of schools. What should be done about this? I mean, what options need to be available to schools? Are schools hampered by educational bureaucracies or by the attitudes of parents? Let's go to Phil in Wellington for the moment and then we'll check back in with our guests who are have been working for a long period of time in school leadership and also in uh, educational psychology and counselling, which is, again, another big part of this topic. Phil, welcome to you, though.
8: Yes, good morning. Hello.
1: Hi. Yeah, go ahead.
8: Yeah. Uh, I've been learning for the last 50 years how to help kids uh, in school, and school has failed. Now, school should be a place that kids are breaking into to learn, not breaking out of it because they're bored. To do that, I'll make learning real to life with hands on learning aids everyday learning activities that are simple and fun. And there's no reason why learning cannot be simple and every reason why lessons should be fun. And the sixth point is home visits. So I used to visit their home to see what they were like outside of school so I knew how best to operate with them. I've taught two kids in the class. I don't know if I can mention the town. Uh, is that, is that let's okay? not. No, Let's No, let's just All say right, you've taught two kids. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned a town.
1: No, let's let's leave that out oh, of it because I okay. think we can work All on right. general generalities. Uh,
8: okay, okay. Well, let's add uh, the school. The classroom I taught in was 600 meters away from the school. I was not allowed to bring the kids of that back into there when I when the AEA, well, the Aboriginal Teachers Aid, was away. I did bring the kids back at school. They disrupted the whole school, but I still was managed to teach these kids, these psychopaths. There were only two of them, but in any case... And I I imagine psychopaths
1: was a label that had been applied to them rather than how you thought of them, Phil.
8: Uh, Yes, and uh, they learned to read within 12 weeks. And it's not an unusual event with the activities that I use. Well, tell me more about that, Phil, because you said
1: weeks. you thought that learning should be fun. What kind of strategies did you use to make it fun?
8: I've used cooking. I've used a uh, linguistics approach to reading. I've used cooking. I've used my trade schools. I've used magic tricks. I've used anything that, any activity that would engage the kids.
1: Fantastic. I, I imagine pulling a card out of your ear would, would be a very attractive thing for kids and get their attention. Phil, thanks so much. That's a, that's a really interesting thing to hear because, uh, yeah, I, I imagine that's Is an option open to some teachers and perhaps not all, but good to hear about. Text message, my daughter, an excellent teacher, said to her class, if you're not careful, you'll see my cranky face, to which one student answered, well, none of us want to see that. some really interesting stories coming through on Life Matters today. I want to chat to Dr Erin Leaf, behavioural analyst and senior lecturer in educational psychology and counselling at Monash, and Melissa Gillett, president of the Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association, executives in WA principals in other states. Uh, Erin, just a quick question. How how big an issue do you think discipline is or feeling hamstrung about discipline when considering the, the rush of teachers to leave the profession?
2: Yeah, it's it's hard because it's getting into the classroom and um, getting becoming fluent with how to use a range of practices to and I like to flip the script and say support improved student behavior rather than focusing so much on reactive reactionary discipline it takes time and it takes practice and it takes mentorship um, to be able to do those things. And I really um, appreciate the number of callers who have said, we need um, better sort of practical training experiences for our early career teachers and we need more mentorship opportunities and we need more support. And I, I fully agree with all of those things. And so... Um, it's really hard to do that when teachers come in and then leave and come in and then leave because the demands of the job are too challenging. So I think that, um, uh, you know, teacher retention is a pretty significant issue within this space um, that needs to be addressed. And and I think we also have to have realistic expectations about what it is that our teachers do um, and look at uh, bringing in other workforces that can support our teachers to do this work well in our classrooms.
1: Yes, I'll read a text on that, Erin. Teachers are not psychologists or behaviour specialists. We teach our content and simultaneously try to produce well-rounded, skilled young people to enter the workforce. Teacher welfare is not adequately being addressed, they say in capitals, and they also write that they have been subject to abusive behaviour from students. I mean, this is – I know that the main reason that teachers cite for leaving or wanting to leave is, is workload, but it sounds like there's a, a feeling that teaching is not a respected profession. Anymore, Erin. Do you feel that that? I mean, do we know if, if, in countries where it is more respected, things are easier for teachers?
2: Look, I think that some of this is um, is being seen in other countries as well as you know the United States and the, the UK are are experiencing some similar issues that we're experiencing currently in Australia around um, teacher retention and, and teacher well being at work. And I think it is you know multifaceted. There are a number of factors that contribute. Um, when teachers say, you know, workload is um, a challenge for them, I think we have to drill down deeper. what What about workload? It could be that it's the workload associated with um, having to play a role in assessing students with additional learning needs to get the right support. Should teachers be the one to do that with all the other demands on their on their plate? Or do we need others who can who can come in and play a more active role in that space? Or is it workload associated with communicating with parents about um, student behavioral concerns at school? is there a role for family liaisons um, or family engagement teams within schools that can take more of a lead role in um, uh, facilitating conversations with parents and addressing parent concerns? So, I think that it's more so about managing the demands on teachers' time. And again, how can we bring in new workforces that have specialist expertise in these areas Um, to to take some of that off the plate of the teacher and let the teacher get back to the business of teaching. That's what they do. That's what they're good at.
1: Yeah, and they've got a very crowded curriculum to deliver. Melissa Gillett, at Life Matters, we've been hearing from uh, various teachers and principals that they do feel hamstrung by the educational bureaucracy to some extent and that they feel they're not free to use, say, suspensions or expulsions even when they're warranted. From a Western Australian perspective, what's your sense of what options your school is allowed to implement
3: look i think from from a wa perspective i think we're in a reasonably good position Uh, when you're talking extreme behaviors the behaviors that would lead to you excluding a student we've got some fairly clear guidelines over here Uh, if a student is violent and physically assaults a teacher there's an expectation that the principal immediately will consider excluding them the key bit though is that child still has the same fundamental right to an education as every other child does. So I think Erin hit the nail on the head when she said, we've got to look at what the supports are available for schools. What are the alternatives that schools can access? Uh, But broadly, you you want a school environment, ideally where you're including kids rather than excluding them but you need to be able to support their particular needs.
1: Yeah, well, and I I think, Melissa, you've made the point to my producer that these problems don't just kind of spring up suddenly. Teachers can see them developing in the kids under their care. What other disciplinary options or behaviour management options do you see teachers using? What strategies do they use to try and head things off before they get too bad?
3: broadly uh, the relationship between a teacher and the kids is the fundamental basic that you need to make sure that the kids are engaged in learning if you can't build a relationship with kids then you're behind the eight ball from the start so so that would for me is the number one is just to spend as much time as you possibly can to create that environment and get to know the kids that does mean as you said that we take away all of the jobs that are not related to that just to let the teachers get on with teaching.
1: Yeah, Erin mentioned family liaison uh, staff, for example, as one one extra add-on to help with that. Uh, Erin, just quickly before we take some more calls, because there are so many people wanting to chat to us today before we finish up, one model often put forward when we're looking at uh, trying to be inclusive in classrooms and make sure kids with extra needs are uh, helped is all means all, this idea that all children, no exception, should be educated in mainstream school classrooms alongside their age peers, does that model have limits or or is it a useful way to look at managing classrooms?
2: Look, I I think that there's a lot of conversation about this. And I think that to answer that question, we really need multiple diverse perspectives around the table. Um, I think that we need to empower um, families and students with disabilities um, to be able to make choices about where their educational needs are best going to be in, addressed. So we often use the term all means all to look at ways to facilitate inclusion in our mainstream schools. And I think that if a, if a child wants to attend their local mainstream school and that's the choice that's right for them, that that school uh, needs to be um, empowered to um, accept that student into the school community with open arms And to meet the needs of that student in their local community. And there's huge benefits for for all students um, when, when we can do that. But I also think that we need to go beyond conversations about inclusive education that focus on place education or where that education is delivered. And we need to go beyond that and look at quality of education as well as student engagement in education. And I say this because I was a kid who struggled at school and I was a high school dropout. (laughs) And I had the option available to me to go to a very alternative school and I thrived. And had that option for an alternative model of schooling not been available to me, I don't know where I would have ended up. So I think all means all means listening to the voices of people and their families, students and their families and respecting their choices.
1: Yep. And many parents of students who are in special schools, for example, would say that is where my child is happiest and learning at their best capacity. It's not necessarily a one size fits all system, the mainstream system. I'll take a few more calls before we wind up today on Life Matters. Leone in Port Macquarie, uh, you've got that kind of outside school perspective that you'd like to share with us. Tell us.
9: Oh, just briefly, I have been a high school teacher in Australia and New Zealand and I have taught in China, but I also manage a large women's refuge, uh, regional women's refuge. So I feel that I saw um, the perspective from the teacher in the classroom, but I also saw what went on behind the scenes in the life of many of these children who are probably being disruptive. And it's literally established by research that many homes are war zones and that children in those situations actually exhibit the same symptoms of children in actual war zones. So I was always struck once by a remark by Jacinda Ardern, who was visiting a prison, and she said, I'm not interested so much in why this person is in prison, but what brought them here. And so in practical terms, I think um, psychologically for teachers can feel very, very alone in the classroom. Um, feeling responsible for the management of a classroom with a lot of very, very upset children in it who are upset with very good reason. Mm. Um, Rates of domestic violence are escalating as resources are withdrawn um, from that sector. Mm. I think having support teachers in a room specifically trained in um, gaining the trust of disruptive children with some understanding of what's happening for them uh, would enable teachers also not to feel quite so alone in that situation. Um, that's that's probably my main point, that what goes on behind the scenes, that woman who comes in covered in blood, broken bones, punctured eardrum, those children have witnessed that and then they expected to go to school and behave in a completely different way. From a war zone to a school um, classroom, it's, it's a very different um, place to straddle. So I just wanted to make that point.
1: Yeah, there are some very rich points you've laid out there, Leonie. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard to learn when you're... Uh, in a war zone. Joe in Melbourne, uh, Joe, you bring a parent's perspective. What would you like to say?
3: Yeah, thank you. I am a parent of a child who has been in a disruptive classroom but not a disruptive kid himself. And I have had to pull him out of his English class and put him into Virtual Schools Victoria because he wasn't learning anything in the class. I feel like uh, schools need smaller class sizes, particularly for dealing with kids that struggle to sit in a classroom. I feel like there needs to be more OTs and speech therapists available in schools. And I also feel like there needs to be other programs for the kids that really struggle to sit and concentrate in a classroom or learn in the in the traditional way. Things like um, hands-on learning that ABC um, featured on TV in Victoria, at least last night on the, on the news. Um, I think those sorts of things would make it much easier. Uh, and I certainly feel like we've had to pay for tutoring. We've had to sort of do a lot of extra work with our son to make up for the fact that he's in a very disruptive class.
1: Well, and I do hope that that is bearing fruit, Joe. Thanks for your call. Thank you. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Let's chat to Kirsten in Myrtleford in uh, northeastern Victoria. Hi, Kirsten.
10: Oh, hi there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to everybody and I feel like I've kind of, the school I work in in Wengaratta has been putting in place many of the things that people have been talking about. Um, and it's pretty successful, I think. Um, we're taking kids who are... A range of either um, school refusers um, trauma background kids and some social emotional diagnosis kids um, so it's a kind of blend of of students but um sort of fundamentally underneath the whole school program is a school-wide positive um, school-wide behavior program in which theory the theory behind it is that you need to actually instruct, you need to teach behaviour expectations. And if you do it in a way that is accessing whatever the students are, what they're trying to access, in some cases, you know, they need to be seen and they need to they need to be heard. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other behavioural issues that lead to this behaviour. Then if you're actually teaching it, modelling it, correcting it, you're going to knock off about 85% of the in-class behavioural issues. And then you've got the smaller group that needs intensive intervention. Um, but on top of that, we also have, you know, a lot of students with very low literacy and we have a whole school literacy program so that we're actually targeting their needs with literacy and um, uh, providing through that and opportunities for them to succeed in the classroom and pursue their passions a bit, I suppose, I suppose. And on top of that, we also have um, a very... Um, inc- well, we have two meetings a term with parents and students and we engage the parents very much in the students' learning. So um, that brings... Often the parents of these students uh, have themselves had um, negative experiences of schooling. So a lot of it's about building trust and bringing parents on board and they yeah. then become our school's biggest advocate. Like
1: It sounds like yeah. building relationships, building trust, building a culture of, of agreed expectations. That's really interesting, Kirsten, because in our last minute or so, I do want to ask Dr Erin Leaf about that school-wide positive behaviour interventions and supports method. Uh, is that a useful thing to, uh, as Kirsten said, uh, kind of model what the agreed expectations are to, I guess, make sure that even kids who might be struggling at home, have an understanding that that this is what's expected at school.
2: <clears throat> Absolutely. I am um, I'm a really big advocate for the school-wide positive behavior support model and it's because it brings in both evidence-based practices or um uh, interventions and supports, but as it also brings a systems perspective, it builds a set of systems around these evidence-based practices to support successful implementation. So our our practices, our class-wide behavior management practices, are only as good as their implementation. So we want to do things like um, identifying, teaching, modeling, and richly reinforcing all sorts of positive. Um, classroom behaviors. We want to make it easy for kids to behave well and hard to hard not to. We want to be able to identify kids' skill level to be able to meet kids where they're at and teach them in ways that are gonna promote their active engagement and learning and help them see that learning is engaging and it's rewarding and it's giving them the skills they need to succeed. So so the, the approach is really an educational type of support, not a disciplinary or punitive type of um, a disciplinary strategy. However, within that model, we do treat um, misbehavior, disruptive behavior as a a learning mistake, just like we would treat an academic error as a a mistake. And we give kids the opportunity to correct their behavioral mistakes, and then we provide positive feedback for those corrections. And, of course, for kids who need more support, we're able to um, provide them with more educative support matched to their specific needs, but within that model, we have teams within schools who upskill teachers and how to implement these practices, so, meet with teachers to discuss when things are working well and when things are not working and need to be
1: changed. So it's not There's necessarily a simple thing that you can just insert into school, but it does seem to be bearing fruit. I wish we could talk about this for longer, but we are out of time today. Dr. Erin Leaf, Melissa Gillett, thank you both so much for your time on Life Matters today. Thank you. you. Melissa Gillett is president of the Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association, principals in other states, Dr Erin Leaf, behavioural analyst and senior lecturer in the School of Educational Psychology and Counselling at Monash University. Well, those childhood memories can stick with us for a lifetime. One lovely example of that up next on Life Matters. Mm -hmm. The wait is over.
11: The new season of Short and Curly has arrived. The perfect podcast to get children and adults talking about life's biggest questions. Like, is it okay to kill insects that annoy us? Is it rude to stare? And should children be allowed to swear?
5: I would never swear in front of my parents, but I do at school.
11: That's Short and Curly. Hear it now on the ABC
8: Listen app.
1: I have to say, this story about a precious object is quite unique. Jenny Mitchell revisits her childhood in this lovely tale.
11: From the age of about seven to 11, I lived in a tiny flat on busy Brighton Road in Elwood in Melbourne. There were so many things I loved about that time. The other residents in the block with their often wild and woolly ways and the contrast with the rather proper family in the huge house next door. Lots of kids, plus a dog and even a nanny. And the local primary school where the majority of the kids were Jewish and we were introduced to new cultures and customs. There was so much to discover about the world. And my precious object played its own part in my curiosity led life. It sat modestly in the kitchen. Lots of families had one. They were quite the thing in the late 50s, early 60s. A laminex table complete with that metal strip around the edge and those spindly metal legs. Ours was a tasteful pale yellow. Our parents valued education and encouraged all our curiosities. They told us we could ask them anything and that they would always tell us the truth. Mum loved literature and poetry, and dad was a chemical engineer who was never without his slide rule and a propelling pencil. He was also, I realise now, a visual learner and teacher. Thus, the propelling pencil and the yellow laminex table came together in a most creative and appealing way. I still remember the first time Dad chose to literally illustrate a point he was making by drawing a diagram on the table with his ever-handy propelling pencil. It gave me such a thrill. It was so unexpected and in my child's mind quite naughty. And to make things even more exciting, the diagram was cleaned around for the next few meals, allowing us all to absorb its impact. Many of us have happy memories of the kitchen table, the food served and eaten, the talk, the laughter and the arguments. But I've never met anyone else whose laminex table was more often than not covered with diagrams, drawings and writing, which reflected our interests at the time. It's probably just as well we had few visitors in those days. There might have been a certain alarm during the week we were working on the female reproductive system and had on view a large diagram of a uterus and the fallopian tubes right next to the unrelated words of one of the classic English poets. I've recently discovered that it was Bob Sykes who invented laminex in his tin shed in suburban Melbourne. I'm sure he would have been thrilled with his invention from a practical viewpoint. But did he ever think about what a great teaching tool it could make, and of how happy it made one little girl to think that her parents so valued her questions and curiosity that they would actually illustrate the answers to those questions onto the much revered humble
1: yellow Laminex table? Jenny Mitchell and that story was produced by Michelle Weeks, with Sound Engineering by Carrie Dell. If I didn't get to your text earlier about education that's because it fell into a giant ocean of texts. I'll leave you with this one. Eleanor in Queensland writes, our 100 year old education model is broken and needs to change. Children, teenagers and society's expectations for behaviour have changed dramatically over this period. Parents and teachers need to work together to achieve the best outcome for the children in their care rather than blaming the other for the learner's perceived problems. And uh, Eleanor goes on, educators need to be able to focus on teaching rather than spending their days managing disruptive behaviour. And if you missed any of that conversation, it's well worth catching up on the ABC Listen app later because you can get the full breadth of perspectives that were put forward. On the next episode of Life Matters, a big issue for our times. How do we manage our big environmental challenges? Climate change, biodiversity. Our government thinks maybe the market can fix those. Carbon offsets and credits have been around for a long time. Now we're getting a credit scheme to protect wildlife. But these market-based schemes, do they work when it comes to protecting the environment? And if they don't, why do we keep going back to that? Well, that's next time on Life Matters.